Hello, my friends. My name is Chris K, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to... Yeah, my name is David Victorson, and I am a former uh, pot smuggler and international black market privateer. Yeah, David, thank you for um, for taking the call, man. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Well, I think this is important. It <laughs> sounds like a simple question. I, I grew up in um, Dorchester in uh, 1950 in the inner city of Boston. And um, this is the, probably the most important part of what I think uh, should be talked about when it comes to anyone who who actually uh, deviates from society, decides to be a criminal because the, the system's not working for them. They don't see any way out. And, there's, and they follow a road that's presented to them, like as kids, and continue on that road until they end up in a prison, a mental institution, or dead. So uh, where I grew up is, all, is what this is all about. It's all about that. It's all about uh, growing up in a poor family um, without parents, being raised by a blind grandmother who was loving and wonderful and kind, but she was in charge of like nine people in a two-bedroom apartment in a slum section of uh, the inner city where, you know, you didn't see a blade of grass or a tall tree, where your, your playground was cracked concrete, your backyard was full of broken down rusty old cars with used condoms and sticky magazines. And uh, your neighborhood sport was street fighting at the end of the, at, at, up the hill um, in, a, in an alcove where everyone gathered at night to watch people beat each other up, box fight, and um, to the point that it wasn't a decision of winning or losing. It was a decision of who who would get up and who stayed down. So that was like how I grew up, what I saw, what, what I believed my future was going to be like from the time I was six years old. Knowing that you go to bed hungry, you don't have clothes to wear, uh, you go to public school where they, they teach you all these subjects, but you're hungry and as I can think about is eating, no one's feeding you. Um, <laughs> You know, you walk by stores where there's food that you can't buy and you want to break the window and take it. Uh, and you see other people drive through your neighborhood in nice, new, shiny cars wearing clothes that fit with chubby bellies and you know that, that they have food to eat and you don't. And um, you grow up that way, seeing that day after day after day until you just get madder and madder and madder and, and all that anger kind of festers inside of you and you can feel it in your nervous system all the way through to your eyes everything, and going the other way. Everything you see, everything you touch, everything you hear, you know is dangerous. So you never have a safe place to go. When you go to sleep at night, you don't go to sleep knowing that you're safe. You go to sleep anxious. And when you wake up in the morning, you have to travel to your neighborhood to get from point A to point B without getting in a fight, stabbed, raped, or beaten. So that's that's life in the inner city. 
when you have no money. And yeah. that's the way I was raised. <laughs> so Where were your parents? Story. Yeah. Well, my parents, um, my dad was in the military, and when he got out, he married my mom. I think they were 21. They uh, had two kids straight away. My sister is 11 months older than me and me. They had no money. And um, when we were born, uh, we all lived crammed into my grandmother's apartment that I was just describing. Mm-hmm. And then my parents took off because um, they wanted to go earn money and not have the overhead of children. And as it turned out, like my parents, I'm not saying that any of this is their fault. This is how it is. My parents were very narcissistic people who later on in life said, look, they never wanted kids anyway. So so that's why their relationship to myself, especially me, was very distant. When I was about 12 years old, they came back into my life. They had saved money, and they had bought a house, which was about a mile and a half in the same neighborhood that I was raised, but it was a house instead of an apartment building, and I spent the next four years there. Okay. And so growing up in that in that extreme environment, um, trying to survive, I guess you, you got into selling dope as a necessity. Well, I, I started... Um, I was kind of a, how you could put it, I I was smart and aware of what was around me, and I didn't like any of it, so I didn't agree with any of it. But at the same time, when I was about 15, I was walking uh, in in Boston near Cambridge, and um, I met an old hippie, and he had a big bag of pot, and he, he asked me to come over and talk to him, so I did. And he said that he would give me, like, these 10 bags of pot. I never even heard of pot. I didn't know what it was, nothing. He said that if I went around Hobbit Square, that the college kids would buy this stuff. And uh, he was going to charge $6 an ounce to me. And he said I could sell it for, like, 13 or $15 an ounce. And then he said, like, anything you don't sell, you can just bring back to me. And what you sell, just bring the money, and I'll give you some more if it works out. And, okay. Uh, just yeah, just kind of a casual thing. Um, just kind of happened. Yeah. So I so I did it. <laughs> was it a uh, Mexican and, brick? Yeah, it was Mexican weed. In those days, Mexican pot came from Michoacan Valley in Mexico, and uh, it was good weed. And um, and yeah, it was, they were bricks. They were hard pressed bricks. Mhm. So how many how many uh, years did you? Did you did you sell on on a small scale? Like, at what age did you did you move up, and how, and how did that happen? Well, um, there were two things going on at the same time. I graduated from high school when I was fifteen, and when I graduated from high school, I left home and went off on my own and had my own apartment in Boston with seven other guys. We all mm-hmm. had like a two bedroom apartment, you know. But, of course, I, it sounds like, oh, a bunch of guys getting together to have fun. Our apartment was in a junkie-infested part of Boston. So it wasn't like a luxury apartment in Beacon Hill. Mm-hmm. It was a high, you know, cheap apartment. And uh, But all of us wanted to be on our own. So what happened is I was selling ounces of pot for that guy. Then I sold hash to some other people. And I realized I was kind of a middleman, low-level drug salesman who would soon get caught because I knew too many people 
So I thought, well, I'm going to find out where this stuff comes from and go get it myself and cut out the, the, the people I was buying it from. I would be my own source, and I would stop distributing it. I would have this one guy I knew who knew everybody and was, was probably um, better at it than me. So he and I formed a partnership together, and um, I went off to Amsterdam when I was 18. And in Amsterdam, I met some guys from Suriname, and we kind of um, got along, and I bought a – we had saved our money. I think I had about $500, and, we, and I bought 10 pounds of hash with the $500 because hash was a lot easier to smuggle than um, pot. So I was sitting around in Amsterdam trying to figure out what to do, and um, and I figured out a way that I could smuggle the hash back into the U.S. with minimal risk. And so I did that. What and, was that method? Uh, well, that method um, was they had these big wheels of cheese that you could buy in Holland that typical uh, tourists would buy to bring back to the U.S. So maybe like, oh, you know, uh, four feet in diameter and about a foot high. So I bought these cheeses and brought them back to my hotel room and I cut them in half and I hollowed them out and I put the hash in them and the smell of the cheese was overwhelming. But that <laughs> cheese was dipped in wax. That's the way they sealed it. The whole thing was dipped in wax. Dipped in wax. So I cut it in such a way that when I put it back together, I took a hot knife and I resealed the wax. And then I got some orange crates, um, the the plastic uh, nylon-like things that bags of oranges come in, and made my own label and brand, like just packaging each one nicely, got some nice boxes, put them in the boxes, and then shipped them uh, by sea back to Boston. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I did that, and I stayed in Amsterdam, and my friend John, um, he got the packages, sure enough, and he sold all that. And now we were worth about two hundred thousand dollars. And we were oh. now we were like uh, nineteen. So, so well, Amsterdam's all right, but not no hash really comes from Amsterdam. It came from um, India, Nepal, Pakistan, Lebanon, and Afghanistan. So I said to John, look, man, I'm going to have to go uh, traveling to these countries and, and build new connections, and we have to come up with different techniques and different routes in order to move what I want to do, because now we have enough money to do that. So he flew over to Amsterdam, and he brought 100 grand for me, and then um, he stayed in Amsterdam just to fuck around for a while. And I took off, and I went to each one of those countries, and I established relationships in each one of those countries. And every group of people I dealt with, every this is really interesting because all of the people I ended up building long-term relationships with were me, but they lived in another country. You see, mm -hmm. they were all started the way I started. So I didn't meet guys in business suits. I didn't meet successful photographers or filmmakers or documentary guys or novelists, you know. The world I met were all street kids who, who so far were still alive and were in the uh, black market, right? So why were they in the black market? They're in the black market because there's no place for them in the white fucking market. That's why. Because none of us were stupid. We're all hardworking. 
but yet we had to risk our lives and our freedom at what started out started out like just to get by, but then we all started making money, but we didn't know about money. We didn't know what to do with it. We just had a bunch of it, and we could eat and buy clothes, but then what? You know, what do you do with the rest of it? And how do you explain it? Mm-hmm. So so what's going on is over the next couple of years while I'm, um, you know, building up this, this um, network of people that I dealt with, and that went all the way, that stretched all the way to Nepal and Kashmir. You know, I made, um, I had business relationships in Lebanon and in Afghanistan and in India and Nepal. And Kashmir was, a, was for a different reason. So in India, the best thing that, that happened is I figured out we could, what we were doing was importing, um, we're exporting, we're exporting ash and, um, so I thought, well, yeah, we're exporting hash. Let's export something legal at the same time. So we'll set up a business in Boston, and all the stuff we, that I buy in India, we'll send to the um, to the store in Boston, and then that way we'll have a way to explain to people how we have this money. So that was so your first. That was your first front business. That was my first front business. And, what years um, I were did these? It, Oh, let's see. I was born in 1950, and I was probably, it was probably 1969, okay. 1970, yeah. So describe the process of, uh, <laughs> you're a street kid from Dor- Dorchester, and, you, and you, you arrive in Afghanistan. How do you find a connect? How did you go about finding a source? What was the climate like back then in, in Pakistan or Afghanistan? What was it, what were those countries well, like I back guess- then? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting about, like, Lebanon. Um, of course, Lebanon had great uh, hash called Lebanese Red. Um, Pakistan had decent hash. but And Pakistan was a very friendly place. I was in Lahore, and I found the people to be really friendly. In Karachi, I found the people to be really friendly. And the people, like I said before, I, I wasn't relating to a, what a tourist would relate to when they went on these trips. I didn't stay in expensive hotels, even though I could have. I didn't. You know, I, I stayed in poor little villages. I went to places where, where like Dorchester of the Middle East. Um, and the people there knew me just by looking at me. Even if we didn't speak the same language, we knew each other. And we knew what we were about because the street is about the street. So, so that's why you know. And so mm-hmm. the places I went, I went without any introductions at all. And I met the right people that were my age, and um, we we talked and we became friends. And ironically, almost every one of these people all over the world that I met spoke English, right? Because hmm. yeah, they all learned English. These are street kids, but they could speak two or three languages. So, you know, I had a lot of respect for that. I was always polite in countries I went to. I respected that them as, a, as, as I was a guest in their country. I never tried to impose my way or be um, unethical or, you know, an asshole uh, to, to anyone. So I was treated with respect also. But along with, with that respect is this other thing. You see, when, when you have a street presence, people also know that if you violate the codes that we all have in common, that there's serious consequences of violating the codes. So you just don't do it. You know, you just don't do it. There's no gray, there's no like 
civil lawsuit if you steal from somebody. Right? Mm-hmm. No one's going to call the cops. No one's going to take you to court. You're going to deal with it what, with violence, or you're going to be um, bounced out. So that's, it's just that simple. You know, it's not a complicated system. It's like natural law versus civil law. Can you talk so, about uh, any of the violence that you witnessed? Uh, because it does seem kind of like it's, it is a little bit like the Wild West. I mean, there is no one to go to, and you have to deal with it yourself. Um, did well, you see a lot yeah, of violence in your, you. in your smuggling days? No. I saw a lot of violence in my early days in Boston, and I can tell you about that. I can tell you that by the time I was in middle school, I had seen four guys rape a guy, and I saw him whimpering and crying while he was getting raped, and I was maybe uh, 10, 11 years old, because I never forgot it. I walked by, it was in school, and I walked by the bathroom, and I heard this like dog-like noise, and I turned around to look to see what was happening. It was in the men's bathroom, and there were three older kids um, raping uh, this kind of weak-looking, red-haired kid. I even remember his name. Um, He had red hair and freckles. Hmm. And I I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I froze. And I, I thought, I should stop this. I should do something about this. But then I realized if I did help him, then I would be associated as a weak person like him. And if I went to a teacher, they would do nothing because the teachers were totally afraid of the kids in school. So I did nothing, and I walked away, and I regretted it. (laughs) I really regretted it. Um, So that every day after school, like my first fight I got in, I, I knew how to fight because I grew up that way. And the first fight I got in um, was after school in middle school, and um, these. Uh, sorry about that beeping. And uh, so, I have, not only were there street fights at the end of the street, I lived on Lawn Street. At the end of the street, there was a street fight. Those were for the older kids, like 18, 19, 20, and sometimes grown men would get into it. But um, at school, also after school, there would be a circle of kids that would be formed out the front door. And, and um, I escaped pretty well, you know. I was younger than everyone else. My parents had put me in school a year earlier, and um, and I was kind of small. But, you know, I was very athletic. I played basketball, ran everywhere, if you can imagine, and was hungry, so I was, like, thin and sinewy. And I mm-hmm. learned how to box. You know, I learned how to box. So I come out of school carrying my books. And they grab me and throw me in the middle of the circle with this kid named Joseph Padico, who was about five foot eleven, weighed about 180 pounds, but he was a not an athletic tough kid. He was kind of a, you know, a regular person, just a regular kid. Yeah. So I'm in the middle with him. I say, oh, I'm not going to fight this guy. This is stupid. Everyone's screaming and yelling and. Uh, so what does he do? He They pushed him, and he bumped into me, and then he knocks my books down, <laughs> and he looks at me, right? And I thought, oh, God, uh, you know. So I, I raised my fist up to fight, and he ran at me like um, like someone who wanted to run at you and push you or something, right? So I just kind of got out of the way and put my foot out and tripped him, and he fell down, and I thought, well, that'll be enough. Uh, but no, he had to get up again. So for half an hour, 
I kept punching him in his left eye until his eye was so swollen he couldn't even see anymore, and he finally just got on his knees and started crying. <laughs> and all the and I thought to myself, look what I just did, you know, like this. None of this was me. I, I wasn't born to be that guy. I wasn't proud of myself. I didn't think I did a great thing. It made me sad, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it at all because it was all wrong. Are you getting this? Like it's all wrong. All these kids right now growing up in the inner city in our country and all over the world are thinking the same thing to themselves. They're thinking, I was brought into this world and it's all wrong. And no one is helping me get out of this mess. I'm going to have to figure it out myself. So by the time they're eight years old and I was eight years old, I was raising myself. And I did not trust anyone. And that distrust stays with you your entire life. You can't get past that ever. You you always distrust people. People always have to prove themselves. There'll always be conditions to love and and trust. There'll always be conditions because you don't know how not to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. Early childhood development is probably the most important thing to emotional health moving forward into adulthood. And if you don't have it and there's no one there to, to give it to you, and you know, you're just kind of out there in space. You become part of a different culture, like a gang culture, as everyone puts it now, gang this, gang that. So, From, from uh, witnessing those types of events growing up, I mean, how did it change you as a person? Were you, were you fearless in a way? or? Well, I, I became I – became, um, I was – like when you say fearless, fearless implies that you have courage or, or you make a, you know, you're you're anticipating something that could um, hurt you and you're afraid of doing it because it could hurt you. That means you would have to go through a process of thinking it through. I think that I got so used to um, realizing if I didn't take what I needed, um, I would die. You know, literally, I I believed that I could have sat down at a park bench for uh, three weeks and starved to death, and no one was going to stop by and offer me food. They would just walk by back and forth, back and forth in their worlds, dressed in overcoats and hats and women with their coats and hats and the little children smiling, and I would be sitting on this park bench going, I'm pretty hungry, but no one's helping me. So I would stop to death. So you learn to take matters into your own hands. So I wouldn't use a word like fearless. What I would say is, is I didn't care if I died. Yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. More like a yeah. ghost, you know. I, yeah. I made that. Yeah. I kind of made that decision when my my grandmother died. I made that decision that from now on I'm responsible to no one, and so from now on I don't live in the past. I don't have a future. So I'm only going to live in, in the exact intersection of time that I find myself at. People say, yep. where are you from? Where's your home? I'd say my home is where I'm standing right now. This is my home. That's it. I had no place to go back to and no place to go forward to, only now. That must have been a, a terrible time for you when, because your grandma raised you. I mean, what age did, did she die? I was about 14, and she um, died because... She died, I'm not sure, like, what the disease was, but I have a memory of being in the hospital with her, and um, she was in a, on a gurney with a lot of other people, and she was blind, 
So she was couldn't see what was going on, didn't know what was going on, and some orderlies had her on a gurney that had wheels, and they were racing down the hall and jumping on the thing, the frame of the gurney and riding it while she was screaming out for help and asking what was going on, what's going to happen to me. When I saw that, I assumed that to myself, this is what my little head thought. Oh, this is happening to us because we're poor. If we were rich, no one would treat a rich old lady like this. Because I'd seen rich old ladies in Boston Commons, and they they look pretty dignified. But this was going to happen to us because we're poor only, and then she died. So I don't know the details, but I do know that that was my memory of her in the hospital on that gurney. So you you had, at this time, you had established a hash smuggling route from Nepal, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India. You had a front business, and you were pulling in money. How much money were you making at that time? Well, when I got back to the United States, um, I was gone for about a year. I came back. We were probably worth around, in cash, between me and John, we had around 500000 So what I, and then the, um, the import business, I was sending over, I made a great friend, like a guy who made ivory, when ivory was, it's like a big deal, right? He made ivory chess pieces and ivory chess boards and um, lapis lazuli plates plates that were ceramic but with semi-precious stones in them, and that's what we were sending over. And then I thought, you know, when I got back and I saw what John had put together, it wasn't quite done well well enough. It wasn't going to fly. So I thought with this much money, maybe we can stop doing this and we can get into a legal business and make money legally, right? Because you're not going to do this forever. I knew that. Um, and, and it was pretty treacherous. I got really sick. I got malaria, and I had vasoamoebic dysentery. Um, I had a lot of near-death experiences because of being um, sick or in dangerous places. So I thought, well, now that we're back, we moved up to New Hampshire, and I bought a barn and a farmhouse for six, uh, $9,000 right, on 11 acres. right? And uh, we, we rebuilt the the barn and turned it into a factory. And I always had this thing about photography. So I started uh, photo silk screening images on a book that were well known and that were available to the public. And I photo silk screened them onto stained glass and then put frames around them. And we set up a photo silk screening business and we started making this stuff. We called it Envision Studios. So we were, we were cranking out like these beautiful stained glass photo silkscreen line drawings of like Alice in Wonderland, Winnie and the Pooh. Then we started working with moray patterns. And then I talked to some guy from Edmund Scientific and we came up with a, an ink that we could use so we could photo silkscreen on stained glass without having to put it in a kiln to dry the ink. So that and, and it stood up to like even like hot water when you were washing it. So then That's we cool. started making, yeah, I started making stained glass lampshades and just had nice craft business going, you know, and living in New Hampshire, smoking pot all the time. Do any of those of still drink. exist, those products that you're making? Yeah, I, I have a couple. Yeah, I have a couple. So so here's what happened. What happened is um, the business is going well. I was traveling, I'm going to all the different gift stores in, in New England, like up in Maine and New Hampshire, down to Boston, Gloucester, 
Rockport, all the big tourist spots. And we were doing well. We were selling everything. We were making about $3,000 a month legally. And um, then at a gift store, I, I, and this is in the book, in my book, but in the gift store, I bumped into a woman from Bloomingdale's who was a buyer for Bloomingdale's in New York. And she, the owner of the gift store, who I've been selling to now like two or three times, introduced me to this lady. And, um, you know, she was like one of those people that um, I looked at from a distance. But I didn't really talk to people who were well-educated or well-dressed because I didn't know how to deal with them. I, I, I not been around them, you know, so I didn't know how to deal with them. But... Um, I looked at that world from a distance. But anyway, this lady said, hey, look, do you have a catalog? I said, yeah. You know, we had a catalog. We had 110 products. Uh, I showed her the catalog. And she said, do you have any more samples? I said, yeah, I had samples out of my car. So I showed her the samples. And she said, look, um, you know, we'd like to put in a, a good size order of your stuff, um, like a gross of all of your products um, for our store in New York. She said, you should come to New York and see the store and sit down and we can formalize an agreement. So I said, okay. And I went home. I didn't know anything about lawyers. I didn't know what a lawyer was. Uh, I went back. I told John the good news. This is great, you know. So we had enough money that we could buy the inventory. The stained glass came in big sheets, like, you know, um, maybe let's see what they about four feet high and about six feet long. They were like sheets, like big sheets of plywood, but they were stained glass. So you had to order them. They'd come by truck and wooden crates, and then you had to cut them all into six-by-six six squares, and then you had to get all the frames pre-made and do all the photo silk screening. And Anyway, it took us about, I got the order. It took us about three months to do, but I want to tell you what happened. What happened is I didn't read the contract. I just signed it because she shook my hand, which is what I thought mattered. Uh, and it turned out that they don't pay you uh, for 90 days. And they don't pay you uh, 100% of what they owe you. If they pay you in 90 days, they get a discount off, like 15% off. If they pay you in six months, then they get less of a discount. And basically, you wait a year to get paid. So. Yeah, so I didn't get paid. So I went back and I said, what the fuck? You know, like, what's up? And she said, oh, didn't you read the contract? I said, well, not really. And she said, well, you should have had a lawyer looking over. <laughs> and anyway, I was like kind of, you know, I had hair down to the, my shoulders and, you know, smoking pot and just working and thought I'd get paid for my work. Like I did when I bought and sold hash, right? <laughs> Nobody said shit like that. So I was a little surprised that this is how that went. So that fucked up that whole idea. So we went back to our hash business, um, you know, and <laughs> that's what happened that, that time that I tried to change my life and just join the real world. Like people say, why would you do this forever? Well, I wouldn't. But this is what I, this, this is my first attempt at being, um, following the law, you know, being civil. So that was so, pretty disgusting. From, I was pretty unhappy about that. From your from your hash smuggling operation, so so you were back to that. At what point did you further expand your operation, and where did it go? Well, I ended up in Colombia, um, and 
I ended up um, through a series of events. We don't need to go into each one of them, but through a series of events, I ended up working with some indigenous tribal people in the Choco region of Colombia, and mostly they were Zika Indians. And um, so that's funny. I just call from some crazy fucking place. Oh, anyway, so uh, okay, yeah. So I, I started working with them and. These guys who were uh, working with fake emeralds, right? They were making fake emeralds. The guy who ran this organization, once again, they were all like me, right? All the people I dealt with around the world were former street kids who grew up with absolutely nothing and had to make their own way, and we recognize each other when we see each other. We just know it. Just go, yeah, you, you know, you just know. So, um, you know, I went through a series of, of adventures with these guys and um, and ended up um, growing on 20, we had 20,000 acres of land and we grew 50 tons, you know, not exactly, but more or less a pot year after year after year after year. It's all different than it is now. These are outdoor grows, right? And it was agriculture. Like 20,000 acres is a lot of land, and it's a lot of agriculture, and it was mountainous land. So it's also a lot of work. So um, we would we would grow for a season and then harvest and then package and bale and then transport down a river to the ocean to a freighter, uh, 50 tons a year for about eight years. So um, in doing all that, what happened is uh, not only was it difficult to move a mountain, basically under the eye of AWACS technology, the DEA, the Coast Guard, the Colombian police, everyone and their fucking mother was, was trying to find these boats. But we were on the Pacific side, and everybody else was going to Miami. So it was good news for me because all the cocaine stuff and all the violence and all the press and everybody was around Miami focusing on Miami. Everyone ignored Seattle, Washington, which was the opposite, as far away from Miami as I could get. So our boats went up there. So I had to learn all this stuff. I had to learn about the Treaty of the High Seas, where, where we were untouchable, where the, when, when we attracted risk. I had to learn about um, freighters, tugboats, barges, military landing craft, offshore racing boats, and sailboats. And then I also had to learn about trucks and how much weight you could carry in a truck, cubic footage, because don't forget, like when you're bringing 50 tons of pot, let's say we did it five, five freighters off the West Coast a year, 10 tons per freighter, you also have to bring the money downhill back to Columbia, right? Yeah. So there's cubic footage. Money stops becoming money when it's cargo. <laughs> it's like it's like a pain in the ass space of, that's going to be hidden somewhere that has to go downhill. And never, ever, ever can you have money, weapons, and drugs in the same place at the same time. That's a that's a rule that you know you you just have to be an idiot because that connects all the dots the cops if you ever get get caught. So we so separated on these, everything. On, on, these, on these freighters, were there legal products on there as well that were being no. used? No. Talk about the um, Treaty of the High Seas. I guess that's 
that's an area of the ocean where you're not governed by any state, any country. How far did you have to go out when when you were traveling from South America all the way to Seattle? Did you could you see the coastline of Mexico? Yeah, to be three miles offshore. Okay, okay. Well, that's not too far. Anything after three miles is international waters, and the U.S. Coast Guard has no jurisdiction unless they contact the country that the freighter or the boat they want to board is is um, registered to, and that country's embassy gives them permission to board the freighter. I see. That's okay. the only way legally that they could do that. And could you describe... The, your smuggling team. How did you how did you choose the people around you, and, and who were these people that helped you? Well, it's a huge a huge operation. First of all, in Colombia, it was the same farmers year after year after year, right? So that's a done deal. These guys are safe. You don't ever have to worry about them. They mainly spoke Chibcha, which is uh, an Inca-based language. It's kind of a sing-song language. So no one, no Americans or white people would go in there and try to interrogate them or get them to talk. They wouldn't even have a clue where they were or what these guys were about. And their heritage went back over 2,000 years in Colombia. So, you know, they're indigenous peoples. It's their property. It's their land. And they don't abide by modern law because they wouldn't agree with it. And they didn't vote for it. So, uh, you know... So that's one group. The next group would be the like the guys that worked on the freighters. They were always different, always different guys. I hardly ever used the same crew twice. And I had guys from Scotland, um, guys from uh, southern Florida, guys from Washington State. Um, and we tried not to have the same crew on on anything more than once or twice, certainly not more than once a year. And they didn't know each other. And we encouraged, I always told the guys and the crew, never use your real name to each other. Because let's say you one of them went out there and they made a couple hundred thousand and they bought a Ferrari and had no explanation for it and got arrested. Then they would have no one that they could go back and rat on because they wouldn't know anything anyway. So you try to keep everyone um, separate and distant from each other, but at the same time, during an operation, you want them to train together because you have to work as a crew. It's basically 11 days uphill when you go from um, Columbia to Seattle. It's about an 11-day trip, and we always wanted to travel during the worst time of the year when the storm season was up, when you could hit like 15 to 30-foot seas, harsh winds, radical weather. Um, and cold because you want to do that because the Coast Guard doesn't want to go out patrolling in that kind of weather. So that was the best time to be out at sea. So, and then when you, when you, and then what we would do is we would stay, the freighters would stay three miles off the coast and then we would have a tugboat and barge go out or we'd have a sailboat go out or we'd have different types of boats go out and meet the freighter and would offload the pot from the freighter onto the other boat and then take the other boat, bring it someplace where we would offload that onto a smaller boat, and then from the smaller boat it would be offloaded by the ton to a truck, and the trucks would hold 10 tons each, and those trucks would all go to the same distributor. We had one distributor, and nobody knew the distributor except me, nobody. And that distributor and nobody of anybody, and nobody ever got busted except for me, right? I, I got me and, and Eric, who was my best friend, who was with me through all of this. But he got a lot less time. 
Eric and I got busted. The, when we got busted in 78, the crew that was on the boat, the Colombian crew, most of them got extradited back to Colombia, deported. And I think one or two of them went to prison. And then um, I went to prison. Eric did a short amount of time. And then Mike Lund, who is the captain that we used for that one trip, one trip only, um, he uh, ran. <laughs> he became a fugitive after the bus. And he didn't get caught for a long time. Yeah, I'm just so. I'm wondering in U.S. dollars back then. Do you remember how much a ton would cost? Just one ton? No, I don't remember how much one ton would cost. I can tell you that, like at my trial, anyway, they um, they figured that I had done over five hundred million dollars worth of uh, pot deals, smuggling pot. But the fact of the matter is they didn't know anything about me when they busted me. So $500 million, I'd say it was closer to $2 billion. And that, um, yeah, I would say it's pretty close to $2 billion. So back then, making all this money, how did you launder your money? Can you can you talk about, you know, how, how you laundered the money, for example, say in like a in the Panamanian banking system? Or what countries did you use and what was the process that you went through? Well, we had offshore accounts in Panama and the Cayman Islands, and um, the process was really simple. You shot uh, for me anyway, because I had the road paved before I got there. I had a law firm um, in San Francisco that knew exactly who I was, what I was doing, and we they put a they built for me a securities firm. Um, so I owned a securities firm in San Francisco in a high-rise building. I owned a pre-Columbian gold jewelry store and a Ferrari dealership. So I had a number of different ways that each one of those things, and real estate, hard assets. So each one of those things served a different function. Some created cash flow that I could spend daily, some accrued cash, and some gave me a balance sheet with assets on it. So I had a well-rounded legal portfolio, and when I was busted, the first newspaper story that came out was that I was a successful international businessman. <laughs> wow. So that's what they bought off, bought off on. So I had homes in this country. I also had safe houses all over the world where I could go um, if I needed to disappear or change identities. I changed identities every year. I didn't go in and out of... Um, uh, what do you call it, uh, customs, right, unless I wanted to. Normally when I went to Colombia, I would get off the boat and go to shore, and there I'd be in Colombia. When I came back here, I'd get off the boat somewhere around Point Conception. Point Conception is the closest um, place to the international shipping waters that there is. So I could have like a one of my offshore racing boats, which I love, like, you know, race out from um, Point Pleasant, and pick me up within 30 minutes. They could be out at sea in 30 minutes. Pick me up off of a freighter. I'd, you know, climb on board to the to the offshore boat and then take it right into like Marina del Rey or Santa Barbara Harbor or wherever. Get off the boat. Or sometimes I'd get off like earlier and bring a surfboard um, on the offshore boat, and then I'd get off the offshore boat and paddle into where the surf was breaking, and then surf into shore hang out on the beach like I'd been there all day, and then someone would pick me up and I'd grab my surfboard and um, act like, oh, yeah, I was just out surfing. <laughs> That's amazing. 
Yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty, pretty, uh, I don't know what the word is. Well, yeah, it was, well, what it, it, look, I, I did all yeah, that. You were like Bruce Wayne. You, you were literally living like Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and believe me, I had whatever on earth I wanted in Marin County. Like, I had more money than God in Marin County. You know, be, between me and some of the other guys that I knew that were in the cocaine trade, we probably built half of Marin County. So, uh, you know, it was a fun time in those days. And, you know, I met some great people. Like, I met some, you know, great entertainers, singers, writers, musicians, uh, philosophers, socialists, you know, all kinds of interesting people. Because I always wanted to know more. I wanted to learn, but, but I couldn't learn well from books. I learned better by listening to people who had lived through things and explained them to me. So yeah. um, I spent a lot of time doing that. I think that's why I got along so well um, when I travel a lot. I, I like to listen, and I like to learn from other people. I'm not judgmental. I've never been judgmental. I believe people should be who they are, and they should just not hurt each other. Yeah. Yeah, kind of childish uh, to some people's point of view, but Adam Smith, you know, I mean, his, in his literature, a lot of the stuff he writes has to do with the difference between natural law and civil law. And there's no doubt I believe in natural law. So on, on April 17th, 1978, that's the day you were caught by the Coast Guard with, back then I guess it was a record amount of, of pot, 37 tons. Um you what happened after that you you spent time and i mean did you did you go on the run or what what happened yeah what happened after that is um once again like it's detailed and it's fascinating through like all different spheres of of emotionality um i i got into drug addiction after i got busted everything was being taken away that i had built all those years and intellectually, I knew it would be, right, because this doesn't last forever. And I pled guilty because I was guilty, and I, and I didn't want to waste anyone's time. Um, so the judge, because I pled guilty, uh, he gave me four or five-year sentences, but he made them uh, concurrent. So I didn't, if they were consecutive, I would have had to serve one half, would have been 20 years. But he didn't do that because I came, I straight up said, yeah, that's me, I did it. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to argue about it, blah, blah, blah. However, my attorneys find that you violated the Treaty of the High Seas when you seized the freighter. So he's going to file an appeal. And um, the judge said, you have to put up $2 million if you want to be out on bond pending your appeal because I was already convicted. I said, sure, I get $2 million. And then um, the day before I was supposed to report to prison, I called Eric up was my friend. I said, Eric, what do you want to do? Go to prison or get the fuck out of here? And he said, let's get out of here. So I said, I'm with you. So we split. <laughs> and oh. we went to uh, we went to Costa Rica, changed identities in Costa Rica, and then went to Bolivia to a safe house that I know of. And this is a whole other story, that experience there. But to make a long story short, at that point in time, the Bolivian government was trying to take over the coca leaf roots from Bolivia to Colombia. And these are routes that were set up and controlled by the Colombians. Partially, uh, I knew a lot about it. So 
So the U.S. government was looking for me for the largest bust in history. Interpol was looking for me for uh, washing money, emeralds, and gold, which I was also involved in smuggling. And now the Bolivian government hired a mercenary group, which were the people that killed Che Guevara, and they were the, turned out to be neo-Nazis who were headed up by a guy called the Butcher of Leon, who the CIA let go after World War II because of his mad interrogation skills, and they were after communists in South America. Okay. So, so they let this guy go there. He was handled by the CIA, but he worked independently for different governments in South America, and he brought along with him his neo-Nazi buddies who were just, you know, madmen. And they were trained, trained military guys. So they hunted me down. They were the only ones who caught me. Everyone else didn't. They did. So they caught me in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And then um, I escaped from them, but they caught me again while I was How did you escape? Well, because um, they came to this safe house that I was in, and they interrogated two other people, and they didn't recognize me. So when I mean I escaped, I don't mean I ran away. I mean, I didn't break when they asked who I was. I gave them my my fake passport and convinced them I wasn't who they were looking for. But then um, they they learned more after that. Someone must have said something, and they went to La Paz where I was staying in a hotel, and they busted in the hotel room, and they brought me to a military prison in Bolivia where I was held, beaten, and tortured for four months. Um, and they didn't get anything out of me, zero and nothing. What type of torture uh, tactics did they use? Well, your typical stuff, which I which I already knew about anyway, because it hadn't been the first time. I was being held by the secret police in Colombia before, and I'm used to people coming at me hard. So if people come at me hard, I know exactly what to do. I just kind of leave my body and disappear for a while while they're while they're causing pain to my body. But if people came at me in a nice, kind way, I get really friendly. But they didn't do that. They came at me really hard, and and I get hotter, you know, because that's how I grew up, right? So, um, so what did they do? They they had whips and uh, belts and uh, batteries, um, batteries and buckets of water that put your feet in, hook, take batteries and put them on your nipples and charge, send a charge. It wasn't that bad, uh, but it hurt, you know, the nipple thing with the battery cables. Um, and mostly beatings, uh, a lot of beatings in the body, not much in the face, once or twice, uh, but mostly in the body, and not sleeping, getting woken up all the time, not being fed, not eating, uh, being handcuffed uh, day and night so you couldn't move, uh, that kind of stuff. It's rough. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, that you know, all the people that say, God, you know, I read your book and I, I wish I could have done that when I <laughs> I think no you don't. You know, yeah. you're just looking at you're looking at the good parts, right? Yeah, the glamorizing it. It's like looking at a beautiful woman and going, God, I'd really like to fuck her without knowing that she's like multiple personality, bipolar mass murderers, <laughs> right? Looks yeah. good on the outside, man, but don't get to know it. Yeah, it makes a good movie. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you know the, you know the correlation here is that to me now I'm 66 years old and I look back at that part of my life was half my life. 
the other half of my life was when I got out of prison, I joined the real world, or not the real world, but the civil world. I didn't break the law. I didn't drink or use drugs. I got married. I had children. I built a couple of companies. And I found that um, the civil law and the way you work in, in our in our system, the way it is, is wrong. Just like it was wrong that I was uh, starving as a kid. The thing that's wrong is that everything is done for profit instead of to benefit people. So if you get in the way of that, you get eaten alive. And like I built a healthcare company, um, ended up owning and operating six hospitals, uh, and wanted to give free beds to people who didn't have money and was willing to cut my salary and the salary of the doctors, and people were doing well, cut the hospital's profits, and say, look, we have empty beds. Let's let's give them away. We have doctors with nothing to do because the beds are empty. We have nurses with nothing to do because the beds are empty. Let's go to work. Let's bring these poor people in and treat them. And a lot of them weren't even poor. They just didn't have insurance, or they didn't have the insurance wouldn't pay for what they needed. So um, I owned the hospitals at that time, and I was chairman of the board. And I said, everyone said no. I said yes, and we did it. So I did that for three years, gave away 20,000 free beds, which means 20,000 days of free treatment. And, um, and I got sued by the insurance companies. And they sued me saying it was unfair business for me to give something away for free that I'm charging other people for. Mm. So they're saying that their clients that have insurance that we're billing should not have to pay the, the burden in order for me to be able to afford to treat people who are free. I said, that's ludicrous. You know, these people paid for their insurance, and you're paying us for the work we're doing to myself, right? Now, I had a big law firm that represented me in everything I did. I didn't get, I wasn't just like some... One thing I know is I know what I don't know. So I hire the best people I can to fill in those blanks, right? So I had Manat Phillips and Cantor, and Mickey Cantor was on President Clinton's council, and that was my law firm. And so we went up against um, Aetna and Blue Cross and a number of insurance companies, and they not only sued me, but they put me in at the end of a lawsuit against some major hospital corporations. There were like all these big corporations, billion-dollar corporations, and me with six mm. hospitals. So, so I was the last one they added, but I was the only one who refused to settle. So you can imagine that um, I went through every penny I had that uh, my wife had, my, the money my son would have had to live a luxurious life and go to any college. I I put it all into this lawsuit because I got so carried away with with the fact that this is wrong and I know for sure I'm going to win that, um, you know, and when the judge told me don't even go to court, settle, and um, so she, she said, look, it's an honor meeting you. You're a courageous man and what you're doing is right, but the, the insurance industry is correct and they're going to win. And this wasn't the kind of thing where you go to jail because you did something wrong. This was the kind of thing where you pay a fine. <laughs> you know, so what, part of the way the insurance industry won is they dredged up my past. So they talked about me being uh, from an underclass. 
They talked about me not having a college education. They talked about me being uh, wanted by the government and going to prison and being a recovering addict. And that was most of the case, was a personality attack on me. So if you had read the deposition that they wrote, I wouldn't have been on my side either. Because what they're allowed to do in civil lawsuits is ask you any question they want, even if it's not relevant to what's going on, right? So the depositions went on for over a year of them asking me questions, asking me questions. My lawyer said, just answer yes or no, but I couldn't because I wanted to tell the truth. Yeah, this is the truth. What, will it, 90, take? what will it take for, for for the government and the medical community to understand that we need free addiction treatment centers across the United States. What will it take? I have no idea because now you see all these people dropping like flies behind opioid addiction, right? Before it was the underclass. They didn't give a shit, right? Before, like, a junkie was a junkie and they were, like, usually black and usually from very poor neighborhoods and no one gave a shit. They were written off, like, so what if they die? Um, so you, you could see how they looked at it like that. Um, but now it's affecting all classes of people. Um, alcoholism is socially acceptable, right, to be an alcoholic, socially acceptable. Yet alcohol is more powerful and kills more people than um, cocaine, heroin, um, and marijuana put together. Right? Alcohol Very true. Is most lethal. Yeah, it's the most lethal drug we got going, and it's legal. So, and I know all this because I spent 15 years in the hospital industry, and 15 years before that, running drugs up to this country. So I think I know a bit about this shit, right? So what will it take? It's not a complicated problem, man. We have all these HUD houses that are empty, right? We have HUD properties, big apartment buildings. To get people off of drugs and alcohol, they need to be medically detoxed first, right, for free. You can't, all this has to be free. There's no chance these people have money. It has to be free. Court can't order you to a treatment program if no one will let you in, right? That's what happens now. They're also proud of themselves. Oh, instead of prison, we're ordering you to 30 days in a treatment program. Where the fuck are they going to go? Right? They have no money. It's a stupid, yeah. it's like ridiculous. But everyone feels good about it, right? Oh, I feel good about it. I, you know, the waiting list for free drug and alcohol treatment programs is like there's never a bed available when people need a bed. And people only have a moment in time when they think to themselves clearly, I want help. It doesn't happen all day long. It's a moment in time. Something happens inside of them. They go, Jesus, I, I really need help. I have to go now. If I don't go now, I'm going to go back to my old ways. I have to go now. And they can't find any way to go. So you take out housing, people that are already medically detoxed, you don't need doctors, you don't need psychologists, you don't need licensed therapists. Because all you need is people who have a counseling certificate to get these people in a safe environment where they can learn job skills, communication skills, go to groups, go to 12-step or religious or whatever they choose type of meetings for their emotional health and get them off the street and put them together in a cause-motivated setting where they're doing it together. We're all going to build a community of people that are off of drugs. We're going to build businesses. We're going to build companies. You know, they, they have to be motivated for, behind some kind of cause, right, because these people are beaten up. 
and you have to get over the beaten upness. <laughs> so um, anyway, I do I do show like that, but for, you know, small small stuff. Yeah, it could be could be done, and it should be done. And opioid addiction is like uh, the only one who benefited from any of this are the pharmaceutical companies in the prisons, right? Oh yeah. So they make billions, and um, and they're people making are dying. record profits. Record profits, and they're loving it. You know, they're just loving it. So they have no interest in seeing the laws change. They have lobbyists that are in there saying, no, 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 you know, don't break laws. Private prison companies, I read some, um, you know, their marketing plan, go into poor neighborhoods. Why? Because if someone gets busted for an ounce of pot in a poor neighborhood, they they can't afford the money for a lawyer. So they have to get a public defender. The public defender's office are overwhelmed. So the public defender is going to do a plea deal with them to get them into the system, right? So that's why they market. That's their marketing strategy is to market in poor neighborhoods, have influence with the police in the poor neighborhoods, the judges in the poor neighborhoods. Because if you get busted with an ounce of pot or even an ounce of coke in Beverly Hills, you don't go to jail, right? But if you're in South Central L.A., you go to jail. Yeah. And this is how it is for the entire country. So is that wrong? To me, it's wrong. Oh, yeah. It's just wrong. Uh, and I, I don't know what to say when something's wrong. I don't know the gray area. Maybe it's wrong. Oh, I'm not sure if it's wrong. Well, it didn't affect me personally. How could it be wrong? <laughs> it's like, what? Are we part of a community or not? So today, you know, you know it's it's good that you're, you're raising awareness to these issues. And I think that I have a, a little bit of hope that my generation and the younger generation are looking at these issues differently and that it, it'll be small incremental change, but we've kind of, we've got to have these dinosaurs die out before we can take over and start well, implementing I, these things. I think you're right. And, you know, don't forget though, like I came out of the sixties where people were so idealistic and everything was going to change. And, you know, we had John F. Kennedy for president and things were looking pretty good. And what happens psychologically to people is is the people from my generation, the ones that went to college and started making money, completely flipped the other direction. They became self-centered, egotistical, and were just out for themselves, most of them. Mm-hmm. And that's what seems to happen. So I think the economic system and the goals and rewards in society have to change. Like, to me, a teacher is a hero. Right? Yeah. Teacher is a hero, but yet teachers can't even afford to live in the neighborhoods they teach in. So, yeah, we lived in places in in Orange County where the police, firemen, and teachers had to commute like 45 minutes to come to work because they couldn't afford to live in the neighborhood they served. So I think it's... yeah, I think it, there's a lot that needs to change, and I don't know that if it'll change through normal evolution or if it'll change through um, some form of revolution. But one way or another, if it doesn't change, is all that's going to happen is entitled people are going to rule everyone else, and we'll be the serfs, this will be the serfdom, and we'll have kings again. Yeah. So what what's so next for you? Uh, what are you doing now? Well, what I'm doing now is um, I'm working on um, getting this book I wrote, uh, 37 Tons, turned into a um, three-year series 
um, wrote a screenplay dealing with uh, producers and, and trying to get this thing done. And um, while that's going on, I've been working with the young people who are um, getting into the marijuana industry. I'm kind of a hero to these guys. And I talk to them not about, like, smoking pot. <laughs> I talk to them about, like, the economics of what they're doing and how to keep themselves a small business so there's plenty of room for other people with the trade, it's good paying business. So like there's room for trimmers, for growers, for salespeople, marketing people, designers. Let's hire people from our own communities. Um, you know, let's be generous with people that we hire, do things more um, with an ESOP, you know, an employee um, participation model than a corporate model. And, you know, basically build something that every business and every model should have what you're doing for your community to pay your community back for the privilege of serving them by making money. So I don't care what it is, whether you, you, you know, pay for basketball court or, you know, that's what I know about. So that's what I would do. But they, they have to find something important to them, you know, for women and men, you know, because both have to be treated equally and both have an equal responsibility to give back to the community. So yeah, that's important. They, they have to feel invested. They have to feel invested and, you know, there's a lot we can do with that. Like kids who are dealing drugs right now know how to deal drugs. Kids who are surviving right now know how to survive. If you were to give them a few basic skills, for instance, like a few accounting classes on the difference between, like, good accounting principles and accrual accounting, teach them cash in and cash out, how to keep a ledger. They already know how to buy and sell. You know, they already know how to keep an inventory. So it's all they really need is to learn a little bit about business structure, like should you have an LLC, an S corporation, a C corporation, what are the benefits, what are the advantages, what's the risk, how much more, what kind of profit you make on certain types of products, and get them to switch their products from narcotics to something legal, right? Explain and show them, look, it's your choice. If you want to go out there and deal crack or heroin, it's, it's up to you. It's your choice. But if you don't, then it's because you want to live longer and you don't want to live in prison. So that means you're going to make less money because you're taking less risk. But it's it's got sustainability. But you have to give them those choices. They don't know they have those choices. They don't know that. They only think there's one way to go and then die. So they don't know that they have those choices. So to me, every industry, the marijuana industry is brand new and it's growing and, it, and it's a high uh, profit business. It's plenty of gray areas, plenty of opportunity to bring in kids and people who don't have college degrees and teach them proper skills so they can be part of a growing movement. So I do a lot of work, and, and, and that's what I talk about, the integrity of the industry. And, of course, we don't in any way want to look like alcohol or tobacco, so we don't want to be selling pot to people who are addicts or people who are stealing money to get uh, money to buy pot. We want to do things in a way that's productive to the community and not destructive to the community. So that's yeah. my thing. I have a little program called School Loan that we're launching in September, which um, works with kids in juvenile hall. I'm working with the um, attorneys and law school students at Howard University here in D.C. So, okay. and I've got a number of a number of really nice people, like former police officers, and and by the way, you know, straight up, like everyone I'm dealing with is black and I'm white, and at some point in time, I'll let go of this. 
um, because I'm white and let let my black uh, friends carry it out because the the truth of the matter is, and I know I get in trouble when I talk like this because people go, look, there's a lot of minorities and a lot of poverty, but I grew up in an all-black neighborhood and I saw what it was like for my black friends, even though we're all equally poor and getting in trouble, maybe me more than others, they got picked on and arrested more than I did. And the only thing I had going for me was I was white. That's it. Like, Mm -hmm. some of them had much better families than me. You know, they had parents who went to church and they came home to a hot meal. But still, because of the color of their skin, they were treated worse than me. And I saw that and paid attention to it. So so I know that... um, for me, anyway, I feel that we could work on that issue. But just like they say, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say the best thing is for one alcoholic to help another. I think if you go through a similar thing in life and you succeed and survive and prosper, then you can go back to children that are similar to you and work with them and they'll respect that more, you know. Yeah, I agree with the you. First thing, yeah, I've, I've spoke to the Bloods and the Crips, and the first thing I have to always do, first statement out of my mouth is, look, forget the color of my skin, okay? Because I know that's what they're doing. They're going, what's this white asshole with gray hair going to tell us? Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame them. You know, I don't blame them a bit, you know, like... It's so funny, not, you know. Like I've, I've been a million. I've had a million covers in my in my life. Now, I've been all kinds of, of characters, and you know, in order to travel and build companies and uh, be in the black market, I've, I've had all these covers. None, never once did I say I was a lawyer or a judge. Never, right? I never built a profile behind that. But yet, for some reason, um, after I turned about 40, people that met me go, oh, what do you do? Are you a judge? <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> no, Far man, I'm it. not a fucking judge, you know? <laughs> well, David, this yes. has been uh, an excellent, excellent conversation. Um, I'll let you get back to what you're doing. I really appreciate you talking with me. Thank you. Yeah, no worries, man. We'll talk soon.